Let's jump in this morning to uh, our scripture. We're going to be, as you probably know, looking at Romans 12.1. A couple of weeks ago, I believe the 15th, is that right, Russ? The the day after Valentine's Day, several Sundays ago. Guys, and I'm sorry, I am real nasally today. I've got a weird cold thing going on, so I'm going to be drinking and probably have a cough drop in my mouth at some point. Um, So I hope that's not too much of a distraction, but... um, A few weeks ago, Russ began our series on uh, the 12th chapter of Romans and laid the foundation to why Romans 12 is an important chapter. And uh, I want to just give maybe a a minute about kind of what he said, recapping that. Uh, Chapter 12 really kind of stands as this hinge point for the first 11 chapters of Romans, those first 11 chapters being very, very oriented towards doctrine and theology that Paul uh, writes this rich kind of doctrinal statement in the first 11 chapters. And then the final five chapters, beginning in chapter 12, uh, begin to look more at the ethics or the practices of faith. And so chapter 12 is kind of this hinge point where, uh, where the, the mode of operation of the book changes when you get to chapter 12. And chapter 12 itself really is uh, and serves as an incredibly practical chapter of a lot of kind of discipleship distinctives. Uh, things that would mark a disciple. And that's honestly one of the reasons why we felt compelled to preach on just this single chapter uh, and and give it a lot of time because uh, it really does uh, nail in this idea of what does it look like to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. So uh, Russ looked at just the first part of verse 1, that first part being this, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. So that's verse 1. A, we'll call it, verse 1a, and he spent the, uh, the morning really looking at this and talked a lot about motivation and uh, the, the idea of uh, what motivates us and gave us, looking at this passage, three different motivations that we get from this passage. The first being this, the word therefore, which uh, connects us to this larger story that is going on. So Paul lays all, all this stuff out in the beginning and then says, therefore, kind of connecting us back to this rich uh, theology and doctrine that he puts forth in the first 11 chapters. The second motivation being the appeal, where Paul is saying, I urge you, I urge you toward the gospel story, which he communicates in those first 11 chapters. And then the third one, the mercies. The mercies of God who are for the less fortunate. The mercies uh, or the empathy for the downtrodden that that he's saying, I I urge you toward the gospel. And then in light of the mercies of, of God, of who God is. I appeal to you for these things. And so it's these motivations that then set us up to look at the second half of the verse, which is what I'm going to be speaking about this morning. So the second half of the verse, we'll say uh, verse 1b, is this, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. But before we can really talk about the implications of this verse for our lives, I think we have to understand exactly what Paul is referring to when he talks about this idea of living sacrifices. In order to do that, we have to understand, uh, we have to really understand what is he connecting this this phrase, living sacrifices, to. And so we are going to embark in what I call an Old Testament crash course on sacrifice right now, all right? So by no means is this going to be an exhaustive study, but this is going to be about four minutes of uh, the meaning and the implications of sacrifice from the Old Testament. So hang with me here. Throughout the Old Testament, animal sacrifice is uh, and was the predominant way that people interact 
with God. All right, so animal sacrifice. We all kind of have an image of what that looks like. This was the predominant way with which people interacted with God. For the Israelites, sacrifice was both a way to worship, but then also a way to reestablish right relationship with God. So something goes wrong, you bring your animal to the altar, you sacrifice that animal to God, and you are reestablishing that right relationship that you have with God. The Old Testament sacrificial system seen early is seen early throughout the biblical narrative. Think Cain and Abel. They both brought their offerings, their sacrifices. You could think uh, Abraham and Isaac. The list goes on and on and on of different ways that we see this idea of sacrifice beginning to arise in the Old Testament, very, very early in the Old Testament. But it's mostly developed in the book of Leviticus. So the book of Leviticus then gives us uh, kind of the ins and outs of animal sacrifice. It's here where the law is specific to explain when to sacrifice, what to sacrifice, and how to sacrifice. All right? So a large part of the book of Leviticus really lays out the details behind this sacrificial system. For us to, uh, to get a good understanding of it, think about the sacrificial system in this way. The animal sacrificial system was created to show gratitude to God, to demonstrate a contrite heart, and to atone for sin. All right? So those three things. Show gratitude to God, to demonstrate a contrite heart, and to atone for sin. This becomes the predominant lens with which the Old Testament is written, and the relationship between Israel and God is understood. All right? So it kind of becomes our predominant lens. But what's interesting about this uh, is that what I think is really important that we have to understand is that even though... Animal sacrifice is really key to understanding a lot of the Old Testament. It never was really about the performance of the ritual for God. It was always about the heart of the ritualer. Okay, so it was never about um, the specifics of you have to have this type of animal and it has to be done this type of way. Yes, those things were detailed out, but it was really always about the heart of the person that was bringing the sacrifice in the first place. It was never about the quality of worship. It was always about the heart of the worshiper. All right? And we would say that's true for us, too. You may not be a great singer. I am not a great singer. I don't think God cares if I sing well or not. But I think God cares. What is my heart when I am singing? Right? Uh, <clears throat> so let's see here. Uh, there's a couple of scriptures that I, uh, that I think really illustrate this point, that it's not about the quality of the worship, but really about the heart of the worship, uh, worshiper. Samuel says this, has the, Lord, uh, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. Psalm 51 says this, then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. I'm reading a little bit ahead of uh, what's on the screen before you. Deliver me from blood guiltness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be blessed with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God you will not despise. Hosea the prophet says this, for I desire steadfast love, speaking for God, for I desire steadfast love and not 
sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. So even though we see this idea of animal sacrifice throughout the Old Testament, it seems pretty clear that God was always about something else. He was always about the heart of the worshiper, always about a contrite heart, a broken spirit, coming to God and saying, God, I messed up. It wasn't about how quality the offering was or the sacrifice was. It was always about the heart of the worshiper. So animal sacrifice becomes the vehicle with which people try to stay in right relationship with God. But you get the sense when reading the Old Testament that it becomes not much more than just a ritual for most Old, Test- uh, Old Testament characters. That it becomes not really much more than just a means to an end. Which reminds me of airport shuttles a little bit. You guys, you should laugh louder than that. That's a funny transition. <laughs> That's comedy gold right there, guys. Um, So uh, it reminds me a little bit of airport shuttles in this way. Let me ask you this question. Do you know what the happiest place on earth is? Uh, I knew somebody would say Disneyland. When my wife is here in the second service, she will say Disneyland because she's kind of a Disney freak. Uh, It's not. The happiest place on the earth is not Disneyland. I've been there several times, and I promise you it is not the happiest place on earth. Uh, It is a good place. Sorry, KJ. I know that you're here this morning. Uh, It is a good place, but I believe... It's the airport shuttle carrying people to a vacation. How many people have been on an airport shuttle before? The shuttle that uh, is at like the park and ride and it's taking you to the airport. The airport shuttle taking you to vacation is like the most glorious, it's the most glorious group of people you have ever seen. It's usually like 5 a.m. in the morning and everybody is up and cheerful and they have their coffees and they're excited and they're talking, there's joy and excitement and people are like, Getting, talking about what are they going to do in the trip, and they can't wait for the flight, and it's going to be so fun. Their luggage feels light. There's like a bounce in their step. It's, it's like this glorious little place. Everybody's on equal playing ground, and everybody's just loving life on the airport shuttle going. They're having fun. Uh, it, it's really because it's the beginning of the trip, right? You've done everything. You've got, you're all prepared. It's the beginning of the trip. You've, you've got on the shuttle, and like now it's over. I've parked my car. I know which row it's in, and I'm on the shuttle, and my trip is now beginning. It's the first part, the very first step of the wonderful journey of vacation. It's the, it's the fact that there is adventure on the horizon. The possibilities are endless, and everybody is so excited to be on that airport shuttle. Now, in contrast, do you guys know what the saddest place on earth is? It's the airport shuttle going back to the park and ride. It is literally the saddest group of people you have ever seen in your entire life. I was on an airport shuttle going back to a car uh, three weeks ago, and this is where I first kind of thought about this. And I'm not a big, like, uh, I shouldn't say it that way. Um, I don't tend to be somebody that hears from the Lord often. There are some people that really have that, like, real close relationship with the Spirit, and they hear from the Lord. Uh, And that just hasn't been my experience. But this is one of those um, kind of strange experiences where I was actually on the airport shuttle going back in this incredibly sad environment. And uh, I felt like the Lord actually said this to me, like, you should use this in a sermon at some point. And so here we go. I'm trying it. We'll see if it works. (laughs) The airport shuttle that takes you back to your car is literally the saddest place on earth. Everybody hates their lives at this point. There is no way to be excited on that airport shuttle. Not one person wants to be there. Nobody gets off the plane and says, oh man, I cannot wait to get on that shuttle and get back to my car. 
People look haggard from the plane ride. There's a thick sadness and kind of coldness in the air. At best, your luggage feels heavy, even if you got your luggage. At that point, you probably already received the notification that your luggage is in Minneapolis or something, so you're not even getting it. Your vacation is done. It's back to real life. People are no longer connecting with each other. They're just looking at their phones, looking at all the emails that they have to get through, sending texts for somebody to come and pick them up or whatever. It really is kind of back to the daily grind. The second you get off that plane and you get on the airport shuttle, the vacation is done. It is no longer fun and games. It is over, and everybody just kind of hates their life at that point. I can remember a couple years ago, we were actually coming back. I had the opportunity to go to Disneyland with Grace's family. We took our whole family. It was this wonderful trip. We had a great time. Uh, and we were uh, coming back now. We spent a couple days there, and, and we were on the, the shuttle back. It was 9.30 p.m. Um, and if you, I mean, if you have kids, you know that 9.30 p.m. for uh, four- and five-year-olds is just probably too late for them to be up. Uh, we had been on the plane ride, and a plane ride with young kids is a horrific experience just in of itself. We're exhausted. Uh, our kids are like, they're either absolutely crazy rambunctious or just falling apart emotional. They cannot handle life at this point. <laughs> we're at the park and ride. We're, get, we're on the shuttle, and I mean, we're just like glassy-eyed, and this lady uh, kind of looks at the chaos that is just around our lives at this point. And uh, we were just coming home from vacation. She looks at my wife and I. She's like, man, you guys look like you need a vacation. (laughs) She's like, man, we just got back from a vacation. We we were just on one like 15 minutes ago. (laughs) The airport shuttle home is a terrible, terrible place. Uh, So here's why I bring this up. The shuttle to the airport, that one that I first spoke about, the one that is uh, the happiest place on earth, I think is in a lot of ways kind of like the original intention of God. It's the beginning of a vacation. It's the beginning of an adventure, the start of a beautiful journey. Joy is in the air. It's exciting. It's exhilarating. It's a place where everything feels light. The shuttle back from vacation is a little bit like the sacrificial system to me. It's kind of obligatory. It's void of feeling. It's disconnected. It's something that just kind of has to happen, but nobody really wants to be there. It's not much more than just a means to an end to get you back to your car. The animal sacrificial system set up in Leviticus was not God's original intention. It's not what God intended in the very beginning in the garden. But it does become the vehicle for people to be in relationship with God in the Old Testament. And in many respects, the Old Testament narrative moves forward kind of with this idea that if something is better than nothing, posture. Animal sacrifice, although it's not maybe the original intention, it's better than nothing posture as it relates to this idea. Until, until we find the culmination of the sacrificial system with Jesus on the cross. The writer of Hebrews states this, but when Christ appeared as the high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Amen? Amen. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more 
will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify your conscience from the dead works to serve the living God. That is a verse of hope, right? On the cross, not only does Jesus hang there for you and for me, but the entire sacrificial system hangs on that cross as well. It was the last sacrifice needed for right relationship with God. All right, crash course is done, okay? So let's get into verse one now. So we go back and let's reinterpret verse one. Verse one kind of says this, in full view of God's mercy, everything that he has done for all people in view of the sacrificial system which he obliterated in the sending of his son as the final and fulfillment of sacrifice now, not out of obligation to obtain right relationship, but because we have the choice and we are compelled by his love and his goodness, our very lives become a sacrifice as our act of worship. That would be a way that you could render that, word, that verse, that you could read that verse. Paul Washer says this in talking about verse 1. He does, not near, he does not here mean to restrict the command to just physical bodies, rather lest one make holiness something which is ephemeral. He gives a concrete embodiment of the command to holiness. This is true in proper worship because the old system of bulls and goats has passed away and because true worship to God is a holistic action of men. God asks for total, not partial, devotion, body and soul. Once again, though even the fact that he would urge them to offer indicates that the command is addressed to a human soul and thus a total devotion is in view. No longer do we have to present gifts or animals or first fruits or offerings to appease God. He is already appeased with us. The price has been paid through Jesus Christ. What happens now is the ability for us to respond to this reality through self-sacrifice. Now, sacrifice is a word that I think most of us could define, but our understanding of the word grows with age and experience. Here's what I mean by that. The definition of sacrifice is this. It's the act of giving up something for the sake of something or someone else. You give up something for the sake of something or, or someone else. That's a pretty easy definition to understand. It doesn't take a real sharp mind to grab a hold of that. However, I don't think you really know what sacrifice is by just simply reading the definition. I think you have to feel sacrifice. It's one of those words that you have to have experience with to fully grasp it. Let me give you an example. When I got my first job, I could not imagine the amount of sacrifice that I was making for like a 10-hour-a-week job, that there were literally two nights a week that I could not hang out with my friends. Like, that was sacrifice to me. Like, like at the first point, I was grappling with this idea of, man, I am a full-on adult right now. I'm sacrificing time with my friends for my real-person job. It was, like, mind-blowing. Then I got married... And I realized that I knew literally nothing about sacrifice. I had no idea what sacrifice even was. I started living with this other person who I loved deeply. I mean, I wanted to live with grace, but, but I was like, oh my gosh, everything has changed. My whole life, is, I have to share like a living space with another human being now. 
learning to independently manage life together, having to like, like my time wasn't my own anymore. Like we had time that we shared together and that that was an expectation. It was, again, this mind-blowing, I looked back at my high school career with a job. I was like, you're such an idiot. You had no idea. Then you have kids. You realize that I I literally knew nothing about sacrifice until I had kids. Everything changed at that point. Do you realize that one day you you don't have kids and then the next day you have a kid? (laughs) That is insane to me. And interestingly, my wife and I had twins, so we had like two kids right away. That living space that I was just beginning to figure out how to like coexist with somebody, I didn't know, I didn't even have a living space anymore. It was theirs. Like these kids were always around. I completely gave up my independence. I no longer have any time for myself. And now we have three kids, you know, and, and it just goes on. Like, the, the older I get, the more experience that I have, the more I realize, like, this idea of sacrifice. What does that really mean? It's not just a definition, but you really begin to, uh, to experience, like, at the core of who you are. It becomes real at that point with age and experience. And I promise you, I give this sermon in two years, which I fully plan to do, the same exact sermon. Many of you will be gone by that point. I'll have like another, like a fourth point to say, and then I got a dog or whatever. And then you like, then you really are figuring out about sacrifice. Sacrifice is something that grows in depth and richness the more it is practiced. It is learned and cultivated throughout our lives. It cannot simply be defined. It has to be lived. So in order to get to this idea of sacrificial living, I think there are a few practices that we need to understand first. And here are a couple of points that I, uh, that I want to leave with. Here's the first thing that we need to understand before we can ever even really talk about being a sacrifice, a living sacrifice for God. And here's the first one, choosing. How many people like choices around here? Everybody should raise your hand. Just raise your hand. Everybody <laughs> likes choices, right? Nobody wants to go to a restaurant with one thing on the menu. People want to go to a restaurant with at least two things on the menu, if not more, because you get choices. With more choices, there comes more freedom. With more freedom, we feel more empowered. Choices give us power. It's really the last bastion of control that I think any of us truly have. As followers of Christ, I think it's easy to look around and realize that we are not really in control of anything, that the world around does not respond to our commands, that even others do not obey our every wish, that in a very real sense we have little, if no, control outside of ourselves. So choice, choosing becomes this thing that we hold on to really tightly. The things we get to choose to do or say, they become very, very important to us because they are where we can exercise that little bit of control in our lives. We choose how we spend our time. We choose the jobs we take and the schools that we go to. We choose how friendly we're going to be over the course of the day. We choose how we spend our money and we choose what church we're a part of and what group we're going to go to. We choose what Bible version that we are going to read and study out of. And with each 
choice made, we are a little bit more defined as people. And all of our choices kind of stack up on top of one another, defining our lives. And the choices we make are incredibly important. This is true in our relationship with God. That the only way that we can live for him is if we choose to do so. You see, you can only truly sacrifice that which you choose. Sacrifice is not sacrifice unless it's the choice of the person. Does that make sense? Sacrifice is not sacrifice unless it's the choice of the person. See, elements can be stripped away. People can be forced to do things. Certainly things can be taken from us. But true sacrifice springs from a willing heart. That's where sacrifice is born. So becoming a living sacrifice is not just something that happens. We don't just read verse 1 and then poof, we're living sacrifices. It doesn't happen that way. It cannot be coerced. It cannot just come out of way of proxy because I read this thing, I am now that thing. It is something that we have to choose. It is an act of the will. It is not a feeling or a sentiment. It is a settled determination to give ourselves wholly to God, to be his and his alone, and to do his will no matter the cost for the rest of our lives. God will not force us to make this choice. This is the beauty of free will. He will not force us to make this choice. He has left it up to our Discretion. He has given us this control. He has freely allowed us to make this decision. And so the choice is ours. How do you want to live? The choice is ours. Do you want to live for yourself? Or do you want to live for the king? The second point, presenting. Once we have made that choice then Paul instructs that we present or offer our bodies. Now again, bodies in this context is not just a physical body. It doesn't just mean that we seek to serve the king through our actions. It means that everything about us is in submission to the king. Our bodies, our actions, our thoughts, our emotions, our desires, our fears, and the list goes on and on and on. Every single thing, every fiber of our being is what God is asking for. Calvin says this, by bodies he does not mean only our skin and bones, but the totality of which we are composed. Everything we have, everything we are, that is what we are to present to God. Just as the Israelites presented their animals as sacrifices, we have the opportunity to present ourselves as that sacrifice every single thing that we are as that sacrifice. When something is presented to someone else, the ownership of that thing is exchanged. The gift I purchase for my friends becomes his when I give it to him. Before I give it to him, he has no right to it. But once presented, I absolve my rights to it, and now it becomes wholly his. This is what takes place when we present ourselves to God. We take what is ours, our life, and give it to the king with a joyful spirit. 
An exchange takes place. Ours becomes his. We relinquish control and submit to God. We are no longer our own. We are his. God is not looking for a truce or the ability just to coexist with humanity. He wants unconditional surrender, unconditional commitment, unconditional sacrifice. And in doing this, if we choose to do this, if we choose to present ourselves in this way, it becomes our greatest form of worship. The act of presenting ourselves precipitated by the choice we made to sacrifice is the most beautiful expression of worship that there ever has been and there ever will be. Here's our third point. Choosing. If you're following along, that should sound weird, right? That was our first point, too. <laughs> this is by design. I know it just sounds like I'm kind of going off the handle right here, but this is by design. I'm reminded of Luke 9.23, which Russ and I spoke about a few weeks ago. Jesus says, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Did you catch that word in there? Probably should have because I paused. Daily. <laughs> to follow Christ is a daily activity. It's not a choice that we made five years ago. It's a choice we make every single day. Dwight Moody made this observation for all you Moody students. This one's for you right here. He says this, The problem with a living sacrifice is that it keeps crawling off the altar. What a great image that is, right? The problem with a living sacrifice is that it keeps crawling off the altar. This single statement, I believe, encapsulates the lives that many of us are living. It's the life of half-hearted sacrifice, of lazy discipleship, of spiritual lethargy, however you want to say it. We made that choice at one point. You may not even really be uh, able to remember when you made that choice but you've only kind of loosely followed it since. It's showing up on Sunday, but never really getting involved. It's giving only that which you can spare. It's not engaging others because it's inconvenient. It's a lack of personal piety or community involvement or missional commitment. It's the type of Christian faith that I think most of the world sees as, as hypocritical. Or maybe just boring. Or maybe worse, indifferent. It's seeing your faith in relationship with Christ as just part of your life. It's just a kind of a piece of my life that happens on Sunday mornings or Tuesdays at group. Not as the very foundation with which all of your life is built. To truly be a living sacrifice means every single day we choose to lay on the altar as that sacrifice. Knowing we could leave if we want but choosing to stay knowing that we get to serve the King Jesus. That we get to be a part of his kingdom. It's a choice we make every day. A choice to offer in totality all that we are, all that we have, all that we do to serve the King. When done in light of who God is and his mercies present in this world, when done willingly, when done daily, then 
we are participating in our reasonable and most beautiful form of worship. C.S. Lewis says this, The Christian way is different, harder, and easier. Christ says, Give me all. I don't want so much of your time and so much of your money and so much of your work. I want you. I have not come to torment your natural self, but to kill it. No half measures are any good. I don't want to cut off a branch here and a branch there. I want to have the whole tree down. I don't want to drill the tooth or crown it or stop it, but to have it out. Hand over the whole natural self all the desires which you think innocent as well as the ones you may think wicked. The whole outfit. I will give you a new self instead. In fact, I will give you myself. My own will shall become yours. This is the great mystery and promise of becoming living sacrifices and giving up ourselves. We actually receive true freedom, real life, and full joy. When we present ourselves as living sacrifices, we do not die on the altar like the animals did in the Old Testament. In fact, just the opposite we really begin to live. This means in our giving up of our lives, we gain far more than we could ever imagine. Just as the Israelites were able to reestablish right relationship with God through their sacrifices, we will gain new and real life with our sacrificial offering. Amen. We're going to transition into a time of communion this morning. All are welcome to come to the table who call Jesus their Lord and their Savior. We invite you, and I invite you this morning to think about what does it mean to live as a sacrifice for God. As we take the bread, as we take the cup, it is the image of his sacrifice. It's a remembering of that. And it's our opportunity to stand side by side with him saying, I will sacrifice my life for you as I take of the elements. Let me pray.